Welcome to the Space Cave, a big warg to all of you. Let's get right into part two of a fantastic conversation with Dominica Romagni. Thanks again to Eric Lyons for setting it up. Enjoy. Okay, so the thought I had, and this isn't like, <laughs> right, like tap a glass and be like, excuse me, everyone at this party, I'm about to blow your mind. This is one where, like, if I were chatting with someone like you on a chairlift or a shuttle, and then I said, oh, your stop's coming up, see ya, I would feel comfortable saying, like, offering this, and if we didn't solve it, I'd be like, eh, it's more of, like, to me, people nod their head and go, yeah, I guess I could see that. Not a philosophical thing, necessarily, but it does seem like it ties into some degree, and I would love it if it is a thing that you could say, oh, well, here's how I would approach this, or here's how you could start, because I feel like you could take... Uh, breakdown snippets and play them or show them with footage and go, see, I'm onto something. And it's also the most generic thought imaginable, which is music always seems to represent the energy of humanity at the time. So you think of like, like a tribe getting together and playing a stretched skin. And it's pretty simple. Even if a bunch of people are playing that, there's kind of a rhythm to it that you can stomp around, you can clap your hands and then you get into, you know, whatever you want to go through beyond that, where it's stringed instruments or uh, ballet or um, the opera, then getting into like bluegrass. If you were to try to chart the journey of music, just even starting in the United States, and you think of like, you know, just religious stuff, gospel things, the blues, then you have just kind of this... Um, bluegrass feel a little faster oh things are picking up things are picking up here and then you get to now where there's just sounds and things within music because of the machinery involved it's just so busy it almost fits our minds where even a song that you're like i like this song it's mellow there are just a hundred layers that didn't exist really in old country or something like that that's just it's busy and is it layered and beautiful or is it just our minds have gotten so complex at processing all these sounds that we're like, Oh, I like this. This relaxes me. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, yeah, it's interesting. Like the, the, the kind of music history, uh, question and like how music evolves is sort of just fascinating to like trace these journeys. Um, but it's also, I think, interesting to read these accounts of each, you know, in each epoch or, you know, <laughs> cultural moment uh, when people are, I feel like people keep asking, this is one of these questions that people keep asking. <laughs> um, so, so you know, uh, I have in mind, uh, like, kind of 15th century, uh, like, uh, church music sure, got yeah. really, really complicated. Um, and, you know, you have this like five and six voice, 
like counterpoint going on with all of these voices singing the same same words but they're all happening at different times and it's very very complicated and like there are all these rules um and then you have a reaction against that in 16th century music which is like we need to simplify things we need to get back to the music of the ancients <laughs> um and they, they they were reading all these greek authors that talked about the like you know uh simple music and and the kind of emotional purity of of this kind of a music and so so yeah i think i don't know there's there are always these kinds of cultural moments uh where we look at ourselves and we try and kind of locate ourselves within this context. And I think the, you know, the, the, the sort of answer, the, the sort of maybe overly simplistic answer is that you get these kinds of ebbs and flows, I think, just given whatever sort of cultural context you're in. Um, and it, it's, it's, there are a lot of factors. So I think, you know, at this time period, uh, with the you know 15th 16th century stuff there are also all of these things happening in science and all of these things happening in religion that maybe made people feel like we need we need something simpler we need something purer and our music needs to reflect that um, so I think there's definitely this this relationship of course between like music that a culture makes mm. and the cultural moment um, but whether there's something inherent about certain types of music that reflect, certain sorts of cultural conditions or emotional conditions, I think is, a, is it's not clear. It might be totally arbitrary. It might be that just like at some point somebody decided that this drum beat felt like it worked with this emotion and we just kind of went with that and now it feels natural. Um, <laughs> or it could be that there really is something physiological in terms of like how we perceive certain speeds of music or certain pitches or certain instruments. Um, that that corresponds to certain emotions that then feeds into this kind of like cultural milieu but yeah i think that's the that's that's kind of getting to the core of like what the question is is like well there's definitely some kind of relationship between what people are feeling and what's going on culturally and the kind of music they produce but is that something that's inherent to certain sounds or is it just something that that we kind of create we, we yeah. create this relationship and then it takes on a life of its own. I like, I think I like to think of it at least romantically in that it's a reconnection to something that we've, that we in, inherently know, but we could never know. So if the universe is, is developing itself into a physical form so that it could, you know, feel these things or understand them in a more tangible way, and we have frequencies, human bodies vibrating. Everything has its own unique frequency. And then you have an outdoor music festival or something like that. And even if you hate the music, if you just objectively were looking from afar and seeing 10,000 people all jumping in unison, that's something. That's something like as a researcher, as a data point, you'd go, oh, whoa, what are we hearing and what did they tap into? Because mm -hmm. you can't get 10,000 people to agree on anything. And yet here <laughs> they are all jumping. Is this our little cells, our little vibrating atoms in our bodies going, yep, that's the sound. And then everyone's bouncing. It's, mm -hmm. I love that thought. Yeah, no. And I think that there are, you know, there's, there's a lot of sort of research that's been done and a lot of evidence that seems to suggest that there are at least certain basic things that musically... Uh, we all pick up on. Um, and so, so uh, for instance, like certain pitch relationships uh, seem to be 
the same cross-culturally and historically uh, perceived. And then, yeah, this kind of feeling of like finding the beat and everybody kind of like <laughs> getting in sync with one another. Um, you know, like like there, there are work songs or songs that, you know, are meant to be sung while you're working that you find cross-culturally and historically all over the place. Um, and similarly, like lullabies, uh, that's something that seems to be pretty fundamental uh, that you find everywhere in you know human history so it seems like there are certain types of music or certain forms of music or certain roles that music can play that seem pretty fundamental um this maybe ties into that in some way in that like uh, a friend of mine's a musician and we were talking about this sort of thing one time and he was like oh didn't kurt cobain want every sound every song to sound kind of like a lullaby like a nursery rhyme simple and you think of like music building up and, you know, we got the beat, we got, it's just the, you know, there's something mm-hmm. poppy. And then, then you have like your hair band, even, even like the harder metal bands, it's still just, and then there's like hard beating, but somewhere in it is fast. It's very fast. And then dung, 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 dung. It's, there's a little bit of a nursery rhyme vibe. And for whatever reason, humans just responded to that. And, and was it the time was, we need grunge. We need a break from this. We need this dun, 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 dun. and then everyone just went, oh, that's like being rocked to sleep. Things have gotten a little stressful, a little speedy, a little angsty. And even though grunge is associated with angst, it was a different kind of maybe a tired angst. Yeah, yeah, like a tired, like just take it down. Angst is supposed to be like shaking your head, not sprinting down a street. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that, you know, like the, the kind of speed of music or like it's tempo is, is something that seems like one of those fundamental things that we sort of react to. Um, And it seems like pretty, like one of those basic features that like when you find say like a song that's supposed to evoke sadness, like it, and it, and it's named as such, like this is a funeral song. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's usually slow and it doesn't matter sort of what time period you're looking at or, or, you know, what kind of um, cultural context you're looking at. It's uh, that typically like slow beats are sort of calming or evoking of sadness or something like that. Whereas, you know, yes, like a fast, fast song, fast paced song is going to be happy or, angry it's these higher arousal emotions but why within that like minor chord sad power chords more like yay we're we're ten thousand people bouncing these these resolve and there's like da 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 like things go up and they come right back to where they started there's a an an ear any earworm or like pop music maker would have to associate would those are like rules written in that don't get too artsy. Don't get carried mm-hmm. away. And, oh, j- the jazz heads are going to love that this skips this note and then doesn't resolve. You'll have five people at your concert. You won't have 10,000 jumping. They, it has <laughs> to be positive things. It can't be minor chords. So what what do those equate to? Are those just like data points that you'd say, yeah, we don't know? Or would you be like, no, here's how this is like a baseline for the things we try to establish that we do know about this? Yeah, I think that there's there's like a really big, you know, uh, like the the level of complexity sort of spirals up pretty quickly where you've got these very basic things where you're like slow music, like calm or like sad, fast music, happy, angry, <laughs> um, or you know, those sorts of things. But then when you get into, uh, you know, like like sort of things that seem much more idiosyncratic, it's much harder to identify, okay, why is it, like you said, that a minor chord 
sounds sad, but a major chord sounds happy. It's, mm-hmm. it's it, the difference is just a matter of a half step difference in one note in the chord. Why <laughs> is the emotional valence of those like so drastically different? And that's one of those things that I think, you know, uh, a lot of times some people want to say, well, this is just, this is the part of like, you have this lower level fundamental stuff that's basic, but then how cultures develop that in different ways to give rise to more fine-grained type of emotions um, is almost like a language that's idiosyncratic to that culture, maybe. Um, So major chords and minor chords, they maybe don't have an inherent sort of basic human meaning in the way that we associate like fast or slow speeds with. Maybe that's just like something that's sort of developed over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think those, you know, those higher level questions are, are kind of s- sort of interesting to, to delve into. Like, oh, is this like a language? Do we assign meanings to these sorts of things? Or is it just a brute kind of association? Like we just get used to hearing these sounds and associating them with these feelings. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it doesn't seem patterned. It does seem like it's like in us it's inherently in us that you couldn't you couldn't play a certain style or note or a bunch of minor chords and have 10,000 people jumping mm-hmm. e- even if you like removed them to it like and they were the control group on a totally different planet it just feels like as long as they have human dna they would go no oh, no way this is sad <laughs> it just feels like it's in us some way do you ever study yourself looking back and that like people that can read sheet music or just hear a note like a cello I mean it's not like there are the same markers for the frets like there would be on a guitar you're really playing on spacing and just feel you're you're kind of intuitively going my pinky's here Mm, that's not doing it better move it a millimeter there it is (laughs) and that that just feels like the universe going yeah this is coming through you this Mm -hmm. isn't a learned thing that you can't teach a robot to move that millimeter you just have it in you. Did you ever, I mean, is that something where you start with? Yeah. I, I mean, I think with, you know, with, with that question about like perceiving, you know, intonation. So like whether something's in tune or not um, is like, I, I taught cello briefly before I went back into philosophy um, and it's really hard. <laughs> I think it's harder than teaching philosophy, but um yeah, you know, you start out with like actual visual markers, like you put little tapes on the, the neck of the instrument and like mm-hmm. the kid kind of like learns to like and then and then slowly you start to put the blinders on, like stop looking at your left hand. You just have to feel where your fingers are. Um, and it just becomes a matter of like muscle memory and then hearing because uh, at a certain level, then you realize, oh, in this chord. I need to make the third a little bit higher than in this chord, in this context, I need to make the third a little bit lower. And I, but I do think it is, it's this, this matter of like conditioning. Mm-hmm. Cause someone happens. taught you the same way. And so like conditioning to hear the third, a different way. That's what you mean. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, like explaining like, Oh, okay, well you want to make the third higher because here it's going to resolve to this kind of a chord. And so it's like, guiding it to this kind of a chord whereas in this context the third is going to a lower chord so you want to make it slightly lower so that it leans in that direction instead um, <laughs> you know things like that the stuff that you can't do on a fretted instrument or on like a piano <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, the nuance that you could get into there where where does it cease to be a note you know when you're playing like just that note and you're you're 
All right, just go ahead and score this scene here. There's a person walking down the street. You're in a sound booth. There's a giant screen in front of you. And you just start playing. And maybe the sound person like, whoa, is that a minor? And you'd be like, it's kind of bleeding into, what is this? Is this in our known? It has to be, but I don't know. How could you define what exactly it is? Yeah, it's a, you know, the, it, it, it calls into to your attention that music is sort of a, like a, a continuous spectrum. Mm-hmm. Like we divide music into 12 chromatic notes, but, um, but really, you know, you have microtonal music that doesn't abide by those rules. And then you have different tonal systems in different uh, cultures and different time periods that divide the sound spectrum up in different ways. Um, so, so yeah, like I think that there's in each kind of system of music, there's interesting ways that people manipulate where those divisions are uh, in a kind of artistic way. Yeah. And cool that we have them just in the same way we have time. And when we need some way to say like, oh, there's X number of seconds or minutes in um, uh, like one decade. We're way off, by the way. We had leap years where like, we're constantly like, oops, forgot this Turns date. out it's really hard to do. <laughs> it's like impossible. Well, we've tried. We've partitioned it out. And you can loosely live your life based on that. And music's kind of the same in that. And when I lived in Austin, I felt like I would either run into musicians who talked about this or you'd go to a show where someone was definitely trying to play outside the bounds of what is the structure, man? What is even time? What We're not playing for an hour. We don't wear watches. The music felt the same way and that like, well, this isn't jazz where you can at least start to kind of enjoy where you think it's going to go, even if you don't know anything about music. But this sort of stuff felt like by trying to break every rule, it was working in that like, I'd much rather someone came out and played the most generic Dun, 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 just any sort of beat that I could be like, oh yeah, I, I recognize that. I get that, yeah. <laughs> well, I think this, you know, kind of comes back sort of to something that we were talking about earlier, which was just, uh, you know, the, like how much, how important is boundary pushing in terms of, you know, coming up with a new idea or, or you know, coming up with a genius idea, whatever that is, mm-hmm. um, you know, something like that. Uh, and I think, yeah, boundary pushing is important, but boundary pushing first of all always happens within a structure Mm -hmm. and so you have to have enough understanding of that structure to know how to push the boundaries or what boundaries to push and then um i think yeah like what you you just said emphasizes the fact that it's like well we really don't like just complete lack of structure Mm -hmm. we we always need sort of a reference point um but it feels like that again goes back to maybe like this intuitive universe inside you kind of knowledge that something from the womb breaking every rule or structure you would not like and a nursery rhyme the simplest sort of structure babies intuitively like it because it's establishing something that is maybe already there and or just very easy to get the the first sort of like fingerprints of or i, I don't know like you know the, the building blocks to go oh okay i see what this is all supposed to be Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's there's there's definitely it seems like there's always a kind of progression. Like, and I think musical training is is a nice example of that. But you can think about like training in any subject where you start out with some. You always start out with some, something simple, mm-hmm. you know, like in mathematics or 
you know, in, in poetry or, but in music, you know, it's like here, you're going to learn these very simple folk songs or these very simple lullabies. Um, and then as you go forward, you start to crave, I think sometimes something more or, you know, something more quote unquote difficult. Um, I think these concepts though are, are, are quite hard to kind of articulate, like what makes something more simple versus something yeah. else more difficult? What makes Twinkle Twinkle Little Star simple and like atonal <laughs> classical <laughs> music or something like complicated? Yeah. Uh, what, what determined, like we, we all would accept that those are the right descriptions of those things, but like what makes them that way? And I think that's where like the kind of interesting philosophical questions come in. <laughs> I love it. I, and I like the, like trying to kind of track it down because it's easy to say, like part of your answer kind of is inherently like, well, I mean, who could know? But at the same time, like, I desperately want to know. I, I really want to figure that out. I, I remember a friend of mine in Austin saying, I want to write this whole thing of music and then I want to hire people that have never played an instrument. And then I'm just going to loosely teach them the best that I can to play it how they want. And or I'm going to do a whole concert where like people that have never played just play stuff. And he was so worried about like the rules, you know, dictating what everyone does. He wanted to play with people that had no rules. And I thought that sounds like a da- just an absolute disaster. But I could understand what he meant in that like it's kind of a miracle that bands ever form. Because in the same <laughs> way that like the cello would have, yeah, there's just this weird spectrum of where the note can live – musicians probably fit in there as well. And I love a story where someone's like, I've only played hard rock. This person was a jazz musician, but man, we really play well together. We don't know why. There's just some like synergy that happens there. And Mm -hmm. that's just the best. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of it, yeah, it it speaks to to how genres are in some sense, like these artificial (laughs) sort of constructions, Um, but there's things that transcend genres. So it's like, oh, both of us play on the back side of the beat. Mm-hmm. Like you might be a jazz musician, I might be a, you know, like a, a hard like heavy metal musician or even a classical musician or something, but both of us kind of like like that lag. <laughs> like that makes us sync up really nicely when we play together. Um, something like that. I don't know. <laughs> when you're playing with uh, your other bandmate in Bitter Bloom, do you talk about these things or is it cons- like in baseball if someone has like a no hitter going you're like don't don't bring it up. Let's just enjoy that this. There's this kind of magic to it. <laughs> I mean, I think like sometimes uh, it's usually like like in any kind of relationship, it's easier to notice when something's not working. <laughs> 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 and and that's when you sort of sit down. And you're like, wait, you're doing this thing, and I think it's it, and then trying to articulate or analyze like why are you doing this thing or what is it that's throwing me off or how how am I feeling something that's different than what yeah. you're feeling? Yeah. Um, and that's actually one area where I feel like philosophical training has been really helpful um, <laughs> in other areas of my life because it it teaches you to kind of hone in and try and be really precise about like, oh, it's not this. It's this that's contributing to this problem. Um, so it might be that it's like, I feel like you're rushing, but you're, you're just playing directly on the beat. Whereas mm. I'm feeling, at least in this tune or this song, I'm feeling like it should, it should just kind of lay back a little bit. Um, but it's not that I'm wrong or you're wrong. We're just feeling that kind of tempo differently or something like that. But but identifying what that problem is can be very tricky sometimes. <laughs> yeah, you, I like that humans of all different disciplines at its best um, 
white men can't jump. These two gentlemen are from very different parts of the world, backgrounds, but they have a synergy when they play basketball together where they can make little eye contact or little movements. And most people that have played some sport would be like, oh, yeah, that does happen. You, you, if you mm-hmm. play with someone long enough, you develop that. Someone that's a surgeon might have a thing with one of their assistants where, yeah, I, I didn't mention that tool. They just kind of knew based on my mannerisms or, or my energy. And when you get that, I would guess with music, you you fundamentally and f- physically can hear it to go like, mm-hmm. whew, that is a sound that like probably lights up your whole body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's definitely that moment of like something clicks and you're like, oh, like this just like it it just feels good. But I feel like that's, you know, that's something that's that you get in, in just human relationships in general. Like you have that with like close friendships or, you know, like romantic relationships or family relationships where it, sometimes it's great. And sometimes it's bad, you know, like people talk about how (laughs) nobody knows how to push your buttons the way that your family knows how to push your buttons. But that's because like you say something and they know exactly what to say to like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, totally (laughs) to get you or something like that. So, so yeah, I think it's, 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 it's one of those interesting things about just human relationships in general. That's, that's something I like about playing music, like I said, in chamber music or small kind of settings, like, because you get much more of this sort of interpersonal exchange. I think it's because I don't play music, or I should say I don't play well. I attempt to play (laughs) instruments all the time, and I'm terrible. But I, I like it. And so in my mind, I've built it up that having that moment where in White Men Can't Jump, it manifests its way in a a really great alley-oop dunk and there's that feeling of just like ah, perfection like it was the perfect Mm -hmm. note it was this synchronicity i think a lot of people when you were talking about like just general relationships can (laughs) we're thinking of you're on the couch with your partner and an episode has ended and there's just a little look and then a little look back that is yeah we're watching another one those are like the dumbest, most minor little kind of like, ah, we're, we're synced up. And that just music feels like it should be a million steps beyond that, you know, that it should be just such a, but it, maybe it's all the same that you just get that reassurance of nice. We're on the same page. Yeah. yeah I, I think, I mean, I think it is really interesting how music culturally is, is, is thought of uh, like in our cultural context, because I think again, like, this is why I like history, you know, and studying history is you, you see all these different um, manifestations of the same concept. And I think for most of human history, like maybe, maybe music was thought of as special, but it was special in a way that was very communal. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, typically like music wasn't performative and it wasn't a way of like, you know, a bunch of people just watch somebody perform. It's like, oh, like much more commonly something like a lullaby or a work song or, um, you know, a way of a community coming together, like in a church setting. Um, and so I think it is interesting that we we look at music the way that we do as this kind of like larger than life thing whereas I think uh, you know historically or at least in in a lot of contexts it's seen much more as this mundane everyday like just another way of kind of sharing yeah uh, a moment with other people yeah I was thinking when you were talking about kind of knowing the rules you know mastering them and then breaking outside of them the greatest painters early on were were kind of just painting portraits of the bible for people that didn't know how to read and getting exceptionally good at you know commissioned work and portraits for other people but then 
maybe the impressionists and things breaking out of that and being like, well, these are the rules. I want to do things that are outside those rules and music being kind of the, yeah, that makes so much sense that, and I always think about it in terms of the commodity aspect in that getting the group, going to church, or when you had to pay to go see some sort of symphony or, or a thing where maybe you'd, you'd sit outside and someone would walk by and go, it's not a free show. And they'd, they'd <laughs> like boot you out of there. And then the invention of like the phonograph machine where you had to crank a little handle, but you could theoretically pass that along to someone else and go, oh, you missed this show. It sounded like this. Crank it at this speed. There you go. Isn't mm-hmm. that nice? And they were like, oh, it's like I'm there. And now, <laughs> it, and now it's just digital where it's shared so much and people that design technology. I'm always wondering, like, <clears throat> maybe they just want to do it as a commodity. Oh, I, I, every, I should be able to sell this device that allows everyone to make music. But are they saying kind of inherently everyone has it in them? I'm just I'm just helping you find a way to get it out of you. Do you just want to press this button and do auto-tune? I'll bet you can make a song. And then mm-hmm. people that have never picked up an instrument are suddenly like, maybe they're like platinum-selling artists because they go, oh, yeah, if I can just press this button, I have songs in me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it does speak to, to sort of, I think, like you were saying, the the, the universal <laughs> power of music in some ways, where where everybody seems to kind of latch onto it or or have an attraction to music, um, and then yeah, this this ease of of being able to make it, um, there's just kind of increasing. It seems like increasing ease um, where now maybe it doesn't like like you said, it doesn't take any specialized training or it's you know uh, special any kind of really special equipment. Like if you have a phone, maybe you can just yeah, make some sort of like beat. Um, so yeah, I think that that's, I think that is something that is interesting about our cultural moment right now. Um, but yeah, there's still this, this, this kind of question about like how commodification affects that because I think just in general, there's always been ways where you can make really simple music. Like if you have like a hollow tube or you have a drum, (laughs) you can make, you can kind of make some, some sort of beat that you like. Um, But then how does that take off? And, and how does that become commodified? And of course, like historically you have these power structures about like, well, you need a sponsor, you need to go work at the court of so-and-so. And, but now, you know, you have certain companies that control how media is uh, is made and how it is disseminated and everything. And for every success story that's like, I was discovered on YouTube, um, you know, I think there are like a million or millions of people who weren't discovered. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think that there is, it's just, it's, uh, there are still sort of power structures in play that I think in some ways now are even less transparent than they used to be. I wonder, <laughs> I think about that all the time in that, like, was there some value in the old like Capitol Records, Playboy magazine? I know those sound like two different like tent poles, but there were there were gatekeepers to them and people mm-hmm. lining up with portfolios. Here's my music. Here are my photos. Please let me in. And now you can put them on any number of sites and commodify it, make money. It's distributed it in such a way where like maybe it's diluted a bit or maybe it's I, – I always seem to think that there's like this – like general principle that eventually we're going to overcome like a celebrity culture and we're mm-hmm. slowly getting there. We're like, if you go to any given city, 
there's some part of it that is filled with beautiful houses. And it's way more than you think. It's hundreds of beautiful homes. And you're like, how big is the 1%? It's a lot of people. Out of 300 mm-hmm. million just in the States, that's a lot of people. And then you go like, say someone that had maybe 250,000 followers on any given platform. I think in our minds, we walk around feeling like there's only a handful of that, but there's probably millions of people that have that number in Mm -hmm. that who's not a celebrity. We're kind of now like everyone is a celebrity to someone. And the person that designed that little box is maybe that's what they're saying is we don't need this thing of that person signed to Capitol Records. They're a big deal. It's instead Mm -hmm. now like, oh, this person makes it in their garage and puts it up on this app. And they are so they're such a big deal to me. And then mm-hmm. that's the idea is like everyone should be a big deal to everyone. We are all talented. I think that's a little bit Pollyanna-ish, but it seems like we're trending that way. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely, you know, when you get rid of these sort of like single channel gatekeepers, um, then then it becomes at least seemingly more egalitarian. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it 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 makes room for kind of interesting community building. Um, where you, you know, you like, I talk about this when I teach aesthetics, but like one of the things that the internet achieved was like allowing people to have a community, even if they don't have a physical community where they live. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that that's, that's like what you're talking about. Like this person is a celebrity for me and this is a community that I belong to of this 250,000 people or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that there's there's also um, it makes it sometimes more difficult to find what you're looking for when there's such a glut. Yeah. So yeah. maybe there's that that side of things, and then also I think there is, you know, at least like when you look at like the kind of influencer culture, or, you know, <laughs> these sorts of things. Um, there's a lot going on behind the scenes in terms of like how much you have to invest in whatever your project is, uh, in order to get it to take off. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you get to kind of see both sides of that being just a fan of music and then being in a band, you know, for me, there's always this feeling of like, I like stumbling onto something new and I like feeling like there's something out there that is like the perfect thing that when I'll hear it or see it or whatever, I'll go, yes, that completely resonates with me. And now I've found, like we were just talking about the community of it. And then on the other side, you're a musician where you're like, how do I do that for other people? How do I, how do we, you and your partner, get our music out there so that hopefully someone slips into channels or just on a playlist, stumbles upon us and goes, that's my thing. Mm-hmm. Is it important for you as a music maker to like have that connectivity? I mean, I think that there's, yeah, there's, there's like two questions there. One is like, okay, as a creative person, as an artist, as a musician, is it important to connect with other people? And there's, there's a whole kind of philosophical, like, branch of discussion that that discusses like, okay, like, does art need to be kind of speaking to a community or geared toward towards other people? Does it have to be expressive? And I think at least for me, you know, my art, I, I like the communicative aspect of it. So yeah. Um, but I think then there's also, if you're a professional, like if you're, if that's what you're doing professionally, um, there's this monetary question about like, I really do need to reach so many people to be able to make a living at this. Yeah. <laughs> and, and given how much is out there, 
you need to be really good at capturing people's attention. And I think that makes it, that kind of gamifies things in a way that makes it like a kind of, um, it's less about artistic authenticity. That's like, how am I going to get somebody who's listening for five seconds to keep listening? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause like you're saying like the, the gluttonous aspect of it, the, the just tremendous avalanche of options that come out every day. Five seconds is even probably asking a lot. It's, it's so competitive. Yeah. So I think that's the other side of this where it's like, yeah, you, you have the ability to kind of make stuff on your own. There's this whole DIY culture and you can put stuff out there. Um, but then in terms of who you reach and to what extent you reach someone, I think that that becomes more and more difficult the more and more. So it, it, I think it's difficult in different ways in both sorts of systems. So you've got the Capital One record system. Yeah, you're kind of beholden to what this record executive likes or what they think is going to sell. But on this other system, you have to figure out how to kind of manipulate people's time and interest yeah. um, in a way that maybe, you know, what you're doing, um, it forces you to change some of your artistic authenticity or, you know, I think oh, it brings yeah. up some interesting questions there about authenticity and, 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 you know, creativity. I mean, you see the same things in any discipline, any, uh, medium in comedy, you know, some people would get real good at pitching their t-shirts and selling their t-shirts and finding the best deals and how to getting, how to get them screened. And you would just see that and you'd go, ah, oh, this is a bummer. Like you, you've avoided, RCA records or whoever, but you've become just like their marketing team. You're now, mm -hmm. you've taken on, because you're DIY, 50 different jobs. And the least one, the one you seem to care about the least is writing the jokes or writing the music. You know, that has to be paramount. But if you're also your own touring manager and whatever else, it becomes kind of impossible for some people. And did you ever watch the show, The Mighty Boosh? Mm-hmm. You know, they're always referencing like finding the new sound. Yeah. I, I just love that. Seems like the ultimate kind of like because you do want to do that. It's kind of it's probably a little bit um, pretentious to say. Oh, my partner and I are in a band. We're looking for the new sound. But you would, <laughs> you would love it if you stumbled upon it because then you would say like you you would both play that note and go, "This is us. We've found it." And maybe you'd be so committed, you would play shows where the audience streamed out and you'd go, "Ah, screw them. They're idiot. They're common." You know, mm -hmm. I think if I were you and seeing people just push buttons on a machine and become multi-platinum selling artists, I would be a snob. I would have a hard time with that. <laughs> I'd be like, but I know music. Do you struggle with that at all? Um, I yeah, I don't know. I think I've I've got I've I've had a personal evolution with this, <laughs> this question um, because I think that there there is there is definitely a kind of classism that comes up with genres of music mm -hmm. um and what we think of as legitimate music and what we think of as like oh that's not really music that's a loaded term that's not a descriptive sentence you're not yeah. like here's the definition of music and that's not music you don't know the definition of music <laughs> what you're saying is something normative or something like value-laden when you say that that's not music mm -hmm. what you're saying is that's trash yeah <laughs> and so i feel like yeah there's there's um a lot of cultural pressure to say like, oh, well, classical music is this sort of special refined mode of expression. And it does take a lot of training to get good at it. And there's a whole lot of, um, you know, literature and, and stuff to learn about. But um, I think 
one of the things that I've tried to unlearn a little bit is, is that kind of attitude towards other like various types of music. Um, I think I've gained, especially in, you know, doing more popular types of music, like looking into traditional music, but then also uh, working with bands and like friends of mine who are experimental musicians or who do electronic music, realizing how much of a craft that is and how much specialized knowledge actually goes into that too, mm-hmm. um, has really made me appreciate that like, if th- you can be a really high level musician regardless of what genre you're in oh yeah i mean you know i think um when you said that's not music rap always used to get that that you know back in like the 80s that's not music mm-hmm. yeah and when in reality we should have been really proud that like as if you're those same people that said that were probably the most likely to like have some form of real nationalism about their personality and there's nothing more american than rap hip-hop and rap that's our export I say mm-hmm. our loosely because culturally, you know, there's some elements there that I, I can't like fully attach myself to. Um, but it's our thing as a country. Like it, rap mm-hmm. is – and people that have made beats that musicians like yourself would go, they're a genius. The way they like strung these things together, the way they created this melody is the same virtuoso aspect that this violinist would have. Right. and they, Or like the, the attention to detail. Like – you know, we talk about like, oh, changing that, like the third, like just ever so <laughs> microtonally, like when you hear a beat and you're like, this needs some kind of extra high frequency. I need to, I need to put some extra, like, I need to EQ it in this certain way, or I need to do this. Like, that's what great producers do. And so, yeah, I feel like I, I, I didn't always have like an understanding of these other areas of music. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more I learn about it, the more I'm like, this is so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's re- I mean, with comedy, you know, like in stand-up, there's this old version of you got to pay your dues and schlep yourself hotel to hotel and perform for horrible casino gigs and then private gigs and all these things. And, and it's changed so much now. We're like, well, that person can't be funny. They just do a YouTube show. And it, it evolves. It changes the same way music does with the, the box. And everything's always growing and, you know, morphing into it and – I think it would be nice if so many people that did create music didn't have such terrible emotional states because of it or as a residual effect because maybe they <laughs> carried around with him bitterly, but I'm good and no one's buying tickets. And that's so hard. But how do you convince people to just, just make it because you love it and just do it and be just accept the results? Yeah, and I think that that's... I don't know that that seems like the kind of thing that's just any kind of artistic endeavor or performing arts like theater, comedy, music, uh, visual art. It's there's always that. I think there's the danger of that dark side <laughs> coming out a bit. Um, and I think part of it is the you know maybe the, more like the social structure or the commodification. And this sense of like, you know, only so many people can make it and I'm good. Why am I not making it kind of thing um, where that that's not why you normally get into these these types right. of professions, um, unlike other types of professions where you're like, I'm doing this to make money. This is my job. Um, you don't get into music to make money. You get into music because you love it or whatever. And then I think that that kind of that jadedness comes in when you're trying to do something professionally or, or, you know, and, and, and the various social pressures come in. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm I'm curious and like <clears throat> I think some of that ties into dun 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 like the Nirvana thing. That was that was not carrying around going, I'm good and I'm playing on promenades and boardwalks with my guitar case open and no one knows how good I am. I'm so good. <laughs> and those people must have such a hard time, like, why? But then the other side and obviously, like Kurt Cobain's death, largely attributed to mental illness and heroin. But if you remove that, there might have been a part there going like, I just play and I like it. Why is everyone telling me I'm so good and I'm such a genius? That would also mm-hmm. be kind of weird to walk around with of like, I play pretty simple stuff. I, I don't think that I'm the, you know, maybe I'm walking by a boardwalk and I see someone with the guitar case open. It's hard for me to deal with because I know intuitively they're really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that, it, yeah, that kind of like fame or attention or or just people trying to tell you, here's how you should do it, or here's what you should be doing, or, you know, play free bird <laughs> or something. Um, yeah, that's, that's, there's this, like this kind of activity takes on a life of its own. It has a kind of cultural presence. And um, I think all too often it becomes, you know, it's, it's just, no one's particular fault, but it becomes more than just, oh, I just like to play. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I feel like I had, you know, part of the reason, probably part of the reason why I didn't just, I I love philosophy and I'm glad I do it. But part of the reason I didn't just do music, I think was because um, yeah, there's, there's like a lot of weird external pressures and a lot of kind of, you know, behind the scenes, um, stress that happens um because that kind of stuff takes on a life of its own where now i get to kind of play on my terms and that's nice (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i was gonna ask you like do you think you could study this without having a background in music because my first assumption would be like well yeah of course but i'll bet it is really helpful to to you know be able to look at music how it's written potentially or just listen to it and go oh okay i know what's going on here I think it definitely does help. Um, I think it's similar. It's like a language. So like it's similar to if you study Descartes, but you can't read French or Latin. Um, Yeah, you can read the works that are in translation, but you don't really get a feel for you can't consult the original text. You can't kind of get a sense of like, okay, how is this word used in the original language in this context? Um, I think it's similar with some of the music background stuff. Like um, you can have a sense of like the music history context or a little bit about um, what was going on culturally, but without the music theory knowledge, it makes it more difficult. Um, so I think that's something that like, yeah, um, that's part of why I ended up working on the stuff that I work on is it's, it's a perfect sort of intersection of my areas of interest, but nice. Yeah. Say you find yourself uh, in one of these, you know, you're at a bar and there's the local so-and-so there. And they go, oh, yeah, you know about philosophy. And I'm like, give me something. What's a philosophy? And whether they would want, like, a prognostication of the future or what's something you would feel comfortable sharing, like, I I think this. Oh, that's such a good question. And I feel like that's that really is just such a such an encapsulation of the reaction you often get in any context when you share like, Oh yeah, I'm a philosopher. I work, I work in philosophy. It's like, what are what are your, what are your sayings? What is your philosophy? <laughs> and I usually, I, I, I don't have a good answer and I should at this point, cause I feel like I've been asked that enough, but um, 
uh yeah a lot of times i'll i'll just like i'll i'll try and just like pull a quote out of a hat <laughs> i feel like that normally like satisfies people <laughs> where you like make them up like every day has a sunset think about that <laughs> and they just walk away uh, no I, I yeah i should start doing that um i think like <laughs> you know they one of the 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 philosophers i uh i work on is like kepler another one is spinoza um and i feel like they have some good sort of like pithy sayings that hit me with one kepler the the like satellite and planet named after guy yeah so kepler the astronomer um was also very very much uh into like plato and philosophy and the music of the spheres um so yeah wow what a fascinating figure i bet he also dropped out of high school there's a similarity (laughs) there Uh, what, would, what would be one of his sayings that you would, I go, I, I, I don't understand life. <laughs> I, I need a <laughs> philosophy to make, help me make sense of this music. Does that tie us all together? G- give me something. I'm trying to think of like one off the top of my head right now. And the only one that I can think of is like what I was working on earlier today, which is um, to know is to measure by a known measure. <laughs> all right. <laughs> But Which how I feel can you like know it's sufficiently cryptic. Yeah, we just <laughs> talked to about... have somebody be like, "Yeah, okay, I'll think about that." <laughs> it's an it's a convoluted way, kind of, of saying we can't know anything because what can mm-hmm. we definitively say is a measure? You know, we, I guess we could have lengths of things. We could get into millimeters and nanometers, etc. So you could know the but time. We've already said is kind of loose. The music being kind of eh, this spectrum aspect. But I like that. So like, I think, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say, I think like it can it can also encapsulate though this idea that some of, um, you know, uh, you can pick your measure, you know, so so part of the way we make sense of time is we come up with arbitrary measures. Yeah, um, that's the only way that we can understand it. Um, <laughs> the only way that we can understand music is to like, come up with a structure and like, um, you know, compare tones to one another and have a scale. So I think that's sort of Maybe what he's saying is that um, yeah. we need we need this kind of conceptual conceptual tools to make sense of the world. Uh, <clears throat> to think of something like gravity and it being a building block for so many things to build way out beyond it to a, an entire universe, and then if you and then if someone maybe it's the guy ah, explain gravity, and then the whole kind of house of cards comes back to like I, I, I don't know, let's just. Let's take it as a measure. Let's everything else we know on top of that. Let's just assume this measure is hold up your car keys. They fell on the bar, didn't they? Okay, that's a measure. We know this thing exists, but to define it or describe it too intricately would be very challenging. And so, like <clears throat> the knowns or the like here, like talking about this and the possibilities, and the, it's very positive and forward thinking. But I would guess getting into this, do you ever find yourself? swirling out into those black holes or having your mind go, what does it all mean? It's too much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, I think that's maybe why I like that quote is because <laughs> it, it, it makes me, you know, it makes me feel better that it's like, okay, we're doing the best we, we can with the tools that we have. <laughs> <laughs> is the pursuit highly important to you or, or is finding results also re- like neck and neck with it? Um, I think I just, I really, I like the, I like the, the, the methodology. 
I like the kind of process. Um, and it's very nice when you get that kind of hit where you're like, this works, this feels like it works. Um, I've been trying all these pieces in this puzzle and none of them work. Um, and you find that one that seems to fit. That's, that's always a nice feeling. Um, but I think really like what drew me to the, the discipline is I, I just like the process of like trying out all these, these things and, and see, I, it, it, it's just like very consuming. <laughs> I can do it for hours. <laughs> I always feel, I felt this way a little bit talking with Eric where like, I'd be like, Oh, okay. So like, what's one of the things that has worked? Are you be like, eh, you know, there's not like, there's not always like a go-to, Oh, we'll take this for example, here's a measure. And then if you apply it to this, then we get this. Mm-hmm. But, but is there like an example you think of just now in talking about that, like something you like to teach or a, a, an example you bring up to, you know, entry level course uh, students? Um, trying to think of. So, so there's one there's one kind of development. And I, I think it's still an open question about like whether this is the right way to think about things or not. Um, but it's a classic kind of philosophical topic, um, being or existence. Um, and historically, I, in the time period that I work on, there are all these proofs of God's existence that essentially say, you know, God is a perfect being. Existence is a kind of perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, so therefore, God must exist because God has all the perfections. And one of the sort of developments in response to this argument was to say that existence is not a property. It's not something like being red Mm -hmm. or having long hair or being five feet tall. Um, Existence is a different kind of thing. Uh, And that that led to uh, sort of developments in symbolic logic about how we like represent symbolically um, certain types of propositions. Uh, existence can't, existence has to be bracketed in a sort of different portion of the proof. Um, and I think that that's a kind of interesting example where it's like you see like actual development in philosophical ideas. And then the, the way that this symbolic logic is developed, you know, has ramifications for mathematics and for coding and for things like that. So um, I think that's that's a concrete example where it's like, look, somebody somebody had this moment where they were like, wait, existence isn't a this kind of a thing it's a this kind of a thing it belongs in a different category and that's like what philosophers do we make distinctions we analyze concepts and so so i think that that's like a fun example of at least one one area where you can actually see some like tangible development how how relenting are people like if you go out with a group that you study with and you you reference red five feet tall existence is there someone, and I picture this person as a soul patch and probably some sort of weird <laughs> glasses, and they go, is red a property? How can you, you know, and they, do you see yeah. red like I, and then they just, just for the sake of kind of arguing it, but do you need to like flush all that out to have that argument to end the night and then the next day send a text and go, eh, you were right, red's a property. I just wanted to like <laughs> flush this all the way out to just have everyone think of it from every conceivable angle to make sure we all had given every thought to it. Is that a, like a necessary thing? I mean, I think that it, it depends. Um, you know, there's, there's always going to be a sort of 
level of intuition pumping as it's called <laughs> you know like what are your intuitions about like so for instance in ethics like what are your intuitions about what's right and wrong um that's our starting point how do we explain these but that's kind of your empirical evidence it's like you know if you were a scientist and you had a body of data that you were trying to explain in ethics it's like here are ethical intuitions how do we explain those mm -hmm. um and i think you know we have we have epistemic intuitions we have logical intuitions so you know if i said if i asked you what one of the examples i use is like can you have the prop can you have five feet tall without something that actually is five feet tall yeah i like that. those are see, <laughs> and, that's what you should say to the guy at the the bar give me some philosophy then you lay that one now he's the one having to spin his wheels i like it yeah, I mean, I, you're totally right. And I think, you know, you get this kind of pushback and it's it's good because it, it forces us to rethink even our most basic assumptions. You always want to push back on these things. But I think there are certain kinds of like logical intuitions we have about like what's possible, what's necessarily true. Um, and that's that's what serves as our data set. I love it in that there's, I would say, empirical data that this process has merit in that a lot of early math physics stuff trying to define the universe was well, philosophically there must be something there must be something that controls that spin like a quark or you, know, you give it like a placeholder name you don't have anything close to the tools necessary to measure that or find it or locate it but you might have some math and go let's just I'm going to go give a talk in front of really intelligent people. I'm going to get laughed out of the room, but they'll spend some time thinking about it. And maybe years later or decades later, someone will publish a paper going, we owe so-and-so a gigantic apology because <laughs> that was a pretty good thing to think about. And that those must be fun to kind of envision the universe or, you know, you're doing it in ways that are, it's thought. So it's even the universe, as intangible as that is, is more tangible than just thought just just coming together with like okay we need a property and discussing is five feet tall or red or you know these you're you're just determining these parameters that'd be a really hard thing to navigate through i would think i, I think i would get lost a lot <laughs> i get lost a lot so <laughs> i think we yeah professional philosophers get lost a lot definitely <laughs> is your, what what's i mean you don't have to share this if you don't want but like you're you're primary goal or like end goal with philosophy you know with teaching with traveling with you know where, where do you is it some sense of calmness or understanding Ooh, that's a good I mean <laughs> that's a good question um I think that with philosophy I think about it similarly to music um in the sense that I really like having a community that I can kind of genuinely connect with and, and talk about these, these ideas with. So I think, again, it's less, it's less about coming up with these very clear solutions to problems. I think that that's something that hopefully will happen, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but it's more about cultivating these sorts of relationships and finding better ways to think through problems, like whatever those problems are or whatever those questions are. Um, and I think that's, that's what I try to do like with my students. Um, and, but also with my colleagues, uh, is yeah, just talk through problems and, and, and figure out a way of navigating <laughs> these sorts of things, like as a, as a community. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I, it's, it's inspiring to hear this because it, the overwhelming, I guess, 
thing that resonates with me is like just having your brain switched on, just encouraging it to think and to process and to wonder. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, that there are two sides to philosophy and I think one side oftentimes gets emphasized more or almost at the expense of the other. Um, so I, I'm glad to hear you say wonder, because I think that that's, that's the side of philosophy that doesn't always get emphasized, at least in philosophical training, is being able to kind of locate new questions or interesting problems or interesting solutions to problems. Um, I think the, the side that gets more emphasized and is equally important is how to think well, which is like, you know, how to be precise, how to say exactly what you mean and nothing more and nothing less and how to like realize when one thing follows something else logically and when it doesn't. Um, but I feel like these two things complement one another and it's the kind of thing that I think is really important because it's, it's not easy to do. Um, <laughs> and I don't think people get enough training in it. <laughs> I, I uh, was doing some shows in um, Alberta, Canada, Calgary, and there's a, it wasn't going great, but there was a group of young people. And so this is that decision artistically. Do I want to just sell T-shirts to these idiots or do I want this crowd over here to enjoy what I'm doing? And I liked this crowd. I didn't really care about the other mouth-breathing, you know, yokels that were there. But this group, <laughs> I was I, I enjoyed them. And one of the guys in the group was a philosopher. And so I asked him, like, what have, what have you figured out? And he uh, was like, I don't know. I, and one of the first things he said was, um, I, I've, been in some, I've been in a fist fight. And I thought, what a strange thing to, like, challenge yourself or to wonder, like, do I exist? Does my physical being, what's this feel like? Or to challenge myself. <laughs> I, I didn't fully understand it, but I thought, that's a weird one. Mm -hmm. But then he also was into rock climbing. What is it about that? What's going on there? This is something that I've noticed actually like quite um, quite recently I've thought about it a bit is uh, everywhere I go, whenever I travel, whenever I go to rock climbing gyms or like rock climbing sites, uh, there usually are people talking about philosophy and <laughs> like in a, in a very rigorous way that shows me that it's like either you're like a grad student or like a professor or something like you, you are serious into philosophy. Um, and I don't, yeah, I, 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 I've been trying to figure out what it is. I think part of it is just like an attraction to problem solving. Um, Cause I think philosophy at its heart is like learning how to think through problems or come up with new solutions to problems. Um, and that's what rock climbing is, is trying to think through like physically, how do I, how do I get from point A to point B? <laughs> <laughs> it seems to go hand in hand with like, and maybe there would be a bit of negativity toward like, I'm out here, I'm pursuing both physically, challenging myself mentally, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm wondering, and the rest of these idiots are just back there watching reality TV and, you know, they're, they're, they're rotting. They're just sitting there letting life go by. But I, I would also think that maybe sometimes you're out there climbing the rock going, maybe there is nothing beyond this horizon. And maybe they haven't figured out that like, you're supposed to just kind of enjoy the ride. And <laughs> I guess a lot of philosophy people have that duality going on all the time. Like, mm -hmm. ah, am I wasting my time? Yeah, I, I, I know I've definitely had that, <laughs> that question <laughs> occur to me. Um, but but yeah, I think uh, there's there is something about like kind of just being out in nature and appreciating that and, and it giving you some sense of perspective of like, you know, your place and things um, 
and thinking thinking through that. Um, but yeah, I also think it's like there's a very cerebral aspect to 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 rock climbing where it's like you try something and it doesn't work, and then you're like, how can I do this differently so that it'll work? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I and I really feel like were I to choose one of the sides, if I had to, at least one that appeals more to me, I think you're being alive in a good way. I think you're doing it right. I think your mind is on. And to me, that seems like the best thing to do. I I could go on all night. I feel like I've taken so much of your time already. But um, you and I and Eric have talked about maybe doing more of these. So I'd love to like continue these conversations. They're very, it's so fun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, (laughs) there's a reason why I have the job that I do. And it's because I like talking about this stuff. So (laughs) Great. Well, I hope we pick it up again soon because it's it's really fascinating. And it's good to have your brain switched up. It feels feels nice to like uh, exercise it a bit. So thanks for spending some time. And uh, Hank seems like a a lovely being also. Yeah, sorry if he was a little bit noisy. I I apologize. (laughs) I don't think he moved the whole time. He just seemed to really enjoy the couch there. There was definitely some scratching and some sort of like schnorfling sounds going on. (laughs) Well, Dominica Romagni? Yes. (laughs) It was an absolute treat. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for having me. This This was a lot of fun. Well, I just loved that. Hopefully we'll do it again and or uh, do an extended Patreon version. We had tossed the idea around of she and I and Eric Lyons together uh, all chatting. A little different dynamic than the normal space cave. So I'm looking forward to that. I think that'll be very fun. Uh, Thanks to Dan. Thanks to Rob Crow for the theme song. If you listen to both parts, perhaps you like this show. And if you like uh, helping things that you like, then mentioning it to someone rating, reviewing, subscribing, all those things help with the algorithm, the metrics, etc. There's also a patreon.com slash space cave where you can get behind the scenes stuff, additional bonus uh, material from time to time. And more than anything, you can just help uh, pay for uh, storage and beer and music and uh, web hosting and all the stuff that goes into having a podcast. So I really appreciate those of you who do support the show. It is Um, It helps the show stay ad-free, which I like. And if you're enjoying that, well, maybe this is the year you contribute a little bit. Anyway, let's get out of here. Uh, Have a great week. Enjoy uh, your month. Have a good 2022. I know we're pretty deep into it at this point, but have fun. Uh, This is a song by, I I hope I'm saying it right, Trenta Miller. It's called All Too Soon. I hope you like it. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.